Enjoy the best week of your game design life at a Waitress Games Design Retreat. Work with professional designers, developers, and others to improve your games and, more importantly, form lasting friendships with other inspired creators. Visit waitressgames.com retreats for more information and use the code BGDLFAN for a free one-hour Skype session with award-winning game designer J.R. Honeycutt to discuss your projects before attending your scheduled event. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about civilization, talking about civ building games. We're talking to Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. Jamie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Gabe. This is, uh, this is a real pleasure to be back talking with you about, uh, about anything, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always love having you on the show. Uh, and as soon as I saw Tapestry, you know, as soon as I got the email from you know the Stonemeyer newsletter or whatever, and I saw it, I was like, I've got to talk to Jamie Stegmeyer about civ building games because I'm sure... He has put in the time. He's put in the research. He's figured this whole thing out because you're, you're the kind of guy you don't want to make something that's already been made before. You know, you don't want to just do something that's derivative. And so I'm assuming you've done a, a good share uh, of research and figuring things out and came with this this whole Civ building genre, which is pretty long list. There's a lot of games out there, both board games and video games. And so I was really excited just to kind of pick your brain uh, about kind of Civ building games and what they look like. And so let's just jump right in, man. What What is a Civ building game? Anyway, what's a good definition? My definition of a civilization game is a game that spans a significant amount of time and uh, and territory and technology. So, so kind of the three T's, time, t- territory, and technology, uh, with the importance being the scope, that it is not a single uh, uh, slice of, of history. It's not a single slice of technology that you're focusing on um, or, or just a, a little land battle here and there. It is a the, the scope of it is very large in, in what you're building. There are plenty of games, as you know, about building things, but I think that the scope is what defines a civilization game in comparison to those other games. Yeah, it's a really good point. You're not just going through a few seasons or a few years. Right. You're going through you know potentially millenniums, hundreds of years, centuries uh, of of time, and things are changing. That's that's a really good way of looking. I like that three T structure. I think it's something that, that anyone wanting to create one of these types of games really think about uh, mm-hmm. those three T's. And so why do you think these games are so popular? Because I mean, if you look at video games and board games, there is so there are so many out there yeah. and it have been for a very, very long time. If you look at the top, you know, 100 on BGG as far as ratings, a lot of those are Civ games. Mm-hmm. You know, the video games come out every single year, Age of Empires, and different things and make bazillions of dollars in the video game realm. Yeah. What do you think? It, what do you think it is about these games that just draws people in and why they're so popular? I think there are a couple different factors, and you may have some ideas too. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. But um, one one factor that I think of is is that it in any game, but in particularly a, a civilization game, it's really satisfying to start with next to nothing and build up to something huge. That's kind of a you know that's a general concept that that we could say about a lot of games. But when you uh, are able to look back at, at at the game at the end of the game and see, okay, there's a civilization here. There's not just a little town. There's not just I haven't just built a uh, you know a, a random little a little little farm or something like that. As satisfying as that can be, I think it really ups the satisfaction when there's a when there's a whole civilization in play. The other factor that I would throw out there is the popularity of civilization itself. Sid Meier's Civilization video game. 
I think there's a nostalgia behind it. And I think the brand has really sustained itself over quite a few years um, with more and more people discovering it. So I think there's there's something powerful about that game that has uh, that carries over to a lot of the tabletop gamer space as well. What about you? Do you have, do you have any theories? Yeah, well, I completely agree about the whole Sid Myers thing. That was the game I was trying to think about in my head that came out of Age of Empires, but Civilization. <laughs> Ironically, the name of the game is just Civilization, <laughs> and it couldn't you know, come out of my brain. But I, I do think that really changed everything in gaming yeah. as far as what could be done, what's possible. He also did a lot of work as far as uh, ratios and, and probabilities and different things like that. Like He changed mm-hmm. a lot of systems. I saw a really cool uh, talk he did at the GDC a while back where he's talking about these different things. And it's just so, so cool to kind of hear him get into the nuts and bolts of the civilization genre, at yeah. least from a video game standpoint. But, you know, personally, and this kind of comes from, from my, my background and just my faith, uh, I think uh, there's a spiritual aspect of these kinds of games as well that people kind of tap into, maybe not even realizing, of creativity, right? I feel like we were created in the image of a creator. And so it's kind of inherent in us that we want, we want to create stuff. And we really enjoy, you know, starting with nothing, and then an hour or two later, we have something built, you know, whether it's yeah. real life, you know, building a thing or creating something, you know, arts or something like that, or just, you know, in a game going from, you know, Stone Age and then all the way through the Space Age or into the future and having saying, I did this. I think that's why SimCity was so popular. I think it's why uh, games like that have been so popular for so many years, because people yeah. just kind of get to tap into something deeper of I created this thing. I built it. It's not like anybody else's. It's unique to me. I made the choices. I did the stuff. Uh, and then, you know, with the, the SimCity, I also destroyed it with a tsunami or an earthquake at the end, and it was kind of fun. I get to start over and do it again. And right. so I think that's that's also part of it. Now, what drew you into wanting to make one of these games? Like, what did, did you play a game You're like, and the gear started turning? Or, like, what inspired you to travel down this road? Uh, there were a couple of different things that factored in my decision to actually move ahead and do it. But it's kind of been on my mind as a, as a genre that I just love in, in, in gaming, um, mostly in the tabletop game space, but also a bit of a fascination in the, in the digital space, uh, for quite some time. It's just, it's been one of the, like people talk about grail games, whether they want to acquire them or design them. And it, it, this has been one of the grail games that I've just wanted to design and, and hopefully add something new and fresh to that genre. Um, the actual impetus for me to actually start on it is that I discovered some um, some sculpts that a guy named Ron Brown was making, mostly on commission. Like people would go to him and say, "Hey, I, I want a beautiful version of Robinson Crusoe," and he would. He's very uh, precise. He works in tiny little pieces of clay, of colored clay. And I discovered his blog and saw what he was working on, and things just started to click. I saw that and I was like, "Oh, that's that's what I that's the look for this Civ game that I want." And so I kind of built it from there off of uh, after I started talking to Ron about it. Very cool. And so, you know, a lot of people, they say, well, what comes first, the the theme or the mechanism, whatever. But you're saying components kind of came first. The components yeah. kind of got you going. Yeah. 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 The, these little these little miniatures. And that's why, I mean, there's been a lot of controversy about the miniatures themselves, which I totally get. But uh, it, 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 they were there from the beginning as, as part of what I wanted in the game. Yeah. Very cool. Because I'm assuming he did all the sculpts for the actual game, right? He did. He did. Yeah. He, uh, he, he would, he would sculpt, he's over in New Zealand. So he would sculpt these little things in clay. It would take him weeks for a single sculpt. It takes him a lot of time. Um, he's very much a perfectionist. And then we would mail them in small batches to China because there was only one copy of them. So he would spend like two months, maybe working on five, six sculpts and we would mail them in a batch to China and just hope and keep our fingers crossed that nothing happened to them on the way. And fortunately, everyone ended up making it over to, to China so that they could be scanned in and, and uh, recreated in plastic. 
Wow. That's a, uh, that's crazy, man. That's awesome that you, you yeah. put so much attention to detail into this. Now that, that's a lot of time. How long do you think this game took start to finish of just working on it? You know, I thought it was 18 months, but then I looked back at my communication with Ram and it started around two years ago. So from, uh, from the moment that I reached out to him to what we're coming up on the, the pre-order, it's been about two years. Wow, that's that's impressive, and it it looks amazing. Like the game just looks really cool. I've watched the, some of the reviews that have come in so far, and, and so the game just looks like it's it's going to be another hit for you. So again, congratulations on that. And and now I'm assuming you played a good many uh, Civilization games, kind of getting ready for this, or maybe just in general, just because you love games. And so, yeah. what what would you say are some of the the best examples? Like if I'm wanting to make a Civ game, what would you say I need to play first before I really start getting into it? Well, I, I, you know, it's hard to put an order on it, but I can definitely list the games that I played, uh, the Civ games that I played um, that influenced it. I'll just rattle them off real quick. They are um, Golden A- the Golden Ages, uh, Civilization, the video game, Civilization, the tabletop game, like the tabletop version of the video game, uh, Seven Wonders, Seven Wonders Duel, Civilization, A New Dawn, uh, Through the Ages, Clash of Cultures, Nations, Nations Dice, Antiquity, Imperial Settlers, uh, and yeah. Oh, and uh, I ended up playing playing Trade on the Tigris, but that happened after I had completed Tapestry. Yeah, so that's a pretty long list, and many of those games are, are some of the best of all time. Nations, oh, yeah. the dice game, is actually one of my favorites of all time. I love I love that it's Civilization, but that you can play it pretty quick. It's very simple, simple to teach. It's one of my favorite games of all time. And yeah. so, like, what are some of the common tropes that you noticed about these games? Some of the things that that they kind of all had in common. Well, many of them um, have a couple different, uh, I, I would say, tracks. I think they, they manifest in different ways in the games. In the games, but there, there's some form of, a, of tech tracks that represent advancement or progress in technology, science, military exploration, and sometimes uh, other versions of uh, other elements of, of civilizations. But most of them have some element of that in the games. Uh, I would say that's a pretty common element, like the, the idea of a tech tree or, or, or some sort of advancement or progress. Yeah. And so when you were looking to kind of do that in your own game, how did you kind of take those ideas and, and create something new? Like walk me through maybe the process of maybe things changing or your design process as far as keeping track of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was a huge part of it. it I, I really wanted to bring in that idea of these tracks where you're feeling advancement. Maybe you're branching off in different directions. Uh, maybe you're pushing a certain type of uh, track while while, uh, while staying behind on another one. And originally, in, in some of the original versions of the game, um, I had eight different tracks. So I had those big four that I mentioned, and then I had some other ones like uh, culture. And um, I think there was, I think I separated culture into like culture and entertainment. Uh, there were a couple, there were four other tracks too. And they, each one kind of branched and then um, came back upon itself at certain points and then branched again. Uh, and it was just a lot. Like the, I have some photos of the original board on, on the design diary of our web, on our website, and it, it was just an overwhelming amount of information. And so over time, I realized that I didn't need eight tracks, and I probably didn't need them to branch the way that I had. And so I simplified them into four different main advancement tracks of military exploration, science, and technology uh, to, to convey this sense of progress um, over, over time. Yeah, gotcha. It also seems like a lot of these games have something in common as far as like jumping in time and going mm-hmm. from one era to another. And, and there's kind of there's 
you know, maybe it's round to round, you, you jump and maybe into different decks or different car, you know, different ways of doing it. So like, how did you determine what you wanted to do as far as your, your jumping in time? And, and maybe tell me about that process. I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't uh, the, the first idea was the best idea. It's like, how did that change over time as well? Well, yeah, this was actually uh, from pretty early on. And in fact, really from the beginning, one of the core philosophies that I had for the game that I wanted to design was that I didn't want it to be tied. I, I wanted it to make uh, logical sense in terms of advancement, um, but I did not want it to be tied to real world history, events, people, or places. I, I wanted uh, people to feel like they were not just creating their own civilization, but they were making their own mark on a unique world. Um, and so that was a, during the design process, the, uh, the, the challenge there was figuring out, okay, which elements of real world history do I want to emulate in the game, uh, such as uh, how technology actually advanced in, in, in our civilization, in our, uh, in our world, um, versus certain elements that uh, maybe uh, didn't have as, as important of an order of operations that um, that could end up being played out of order, more of a, like a random element of the game. And so, whereas the the advancement tracks and some of the tracks on the income mats in the game are in a certain order, you're advancing. Uh, like war planes don't proceed, uh, don't proceed uh, like uh, sword play or things like that. You you're always going to figure out how to make swords before you figure out how to make war planes. Um, there are there's a separate set of deck of cards called tapestry cards that are more those things that could happen in different orders depending on how your world works and that uh, is meant to to create a, a unique story in the game so it was kind of a delineating between those two elements things that needed to go in a certain order and things that that didn't yeah gosh i could see how that could be something that holds certain games back especially if you are basing your game on real life history mm -hmm. you know there's a certain expectation from people playing the game that things should happen in a certain way and maybe not you know day by day, so to speak, you know, everything has to be the exact same way, but right. uh, I can see how that could be a, a restriction. What, do you, what would you say are some of the maybe advantages of using real life history for one of these games? Well, that's a good question. I've not been asked that. That's a good question about the, the advantages of using real life history. Well, I think people, uh, people connect to it. People can, can identify, say with like Einstein and so if they have the Einstein character in their game, just by saying the name Einstein, you kind of know, okay, he's probably science or mathematics, you know, I, that's what he's good at. And then you can connect that theme to the mechanisms. So th there's uh, already a precedent there if you're using um, historical places or people or events that are well known, that you almost don't have to explain the theme of it much more around that. And as long as you pair the mechanisms to it, it can become pretty interesting. We've seen that like Seven Wonders has a bunch of interesting leaders in one of the expansions through the ages as a bunch of those people come in. I, uh, so I don't know. I think it makes for an easier connection between the theme and the uh, and the mechanisms. Yeah, it's a really good point. It kind of gives you a little bit more direction from yeah. the start. You don't have to create or invent everything. It's already kind of there and you just kind of get to, to mess with it a little bit. And I think, yeah. like you're saying, people also kind of anchor to certain things. And I remember, I can't remember if it was Civilization, it was a video game that was a Civ-based game. And you could choose your leader and it could be Alexander the Great or yeah. Caesar or Abraham Lincoln. And I was like, ooh, ooh, I want to be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to be this guy. You know, I want to kind of run my civilization from the eyes of Lincoln. Right. And uh, it, it, that's something I could just anchor onto that if it was all just made up, then I wouldn't have had that reaction. And so I think you can kind of uh, have some really cool expectations going in that sometimes you have to fight against as well, but they can also be expectations that, that people respond to, you know, in a, in a good and positive way. Now, what would you say have been the advantages of kind of doing it your way of like 
brand new history. They're, you know, it's not Egypt and Rome and the United States. Like it's brand new countries, brand new everything. What's been in the advantages there? Well, I think the advantage there is that you're, I, I've kind of created a, uh, a template that people can tell their own stories in. They're, they're not tied to, to real world history. They, they, they don't have to do the things that the way they happened um, in, in our world and what, whichever civilization they choose. Um, it, it gives players a certain amount of freedom uh, to, to tell their own story. So I think that's... Um, both in terms of the, the, the game space itself, how, how that can be fun, but I also think that hopefully it will set Tapestry apart a little bit from these other games, not necessarily better, but just different uh, because it, 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 it doesn't, it, it isn't uh, tied to, to those, those real world histories, uh, moments, places, events, things like that, people. Yeah, that's a really good point. It does help you stand out from the crowd. And one thing I love that you're able to do because you're not using the the world, so to speak, and you're not doing specific countries, is that the way the map gets laid out is going to be different every time. You're not oh, yeah. stuck with has to be Italy, has to be Europe, has to be you know the globe, and has to fit in these very specific boundaries. Like no, it could be a totally different continent or set of continents, different islands every single time. Right. And so I think that's a really cool thing that that your game brings that you can bring more replayability because the map is so. Uh, changeable and tell me tell me a little bit more about the map and kind of how it works in your game yeah so uh there it's a double-sided game board uh one side is for one of three players one side is for uh four to five players it's the first time i've actually ever done that that was a fairly late change in the design process uh but it got some feedback from play testers that it would scale better that way so it was because it's a hex map map it was actually fairly easy to change and it, it's basically yeah it's a, it's a hex map where you're putting down uh tiles as you explore on this map to uh, to to add to a little bit of uh, land that's pre-printed on the board, and then other areas that aren't pre-printed, um, and you're, you're basically just expanding these land masses. And there are certain incentives in the game to get you to to match up terrains with one another as you are placing those tiles on the board, uh, with kind of the idea that it'll end up um, being more aesthetically pleasing than if you just randomly put down a tile when, when you're when you're exploring. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the basic idea. I mean, it's it's a map with some land on it, um, and and as you place tiles on the board, it you get rid of this space that that was somewhat blank, and and you add and you're adding uh, more more visible land and usable land to the board. Right, and then don't you get like bonuses for connecting certain land masses together or something like that? Yeah, that that's the thing that I was referring to with the the terrain matching. Um, each each territory has usually two or three terrain types on it that are touching the edges. And so when you place a, uh, a territory tile, if, um, if at least one of the terrains on each edge touches another terrain uh, of, of a territory that's already on the board, you get a point from that. So you have a potential of getting six points every time you explore and place a tile, although it's rather difficult to do that, to have a perfect match like that. Yeah, very cool. And now one thing that shows up in a lot of Civ building games and a lot of just worker placement stuff in, in general uh, is the whole concept of feeding your people. Yes. Now, I don't I didn't notice you don't you don't have a feed your people mechanism in your game, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, there, there are a few reasons behind that. So, yeah, a lot of Civ games. This is talk, talking about common tropes. There's there's feeding people. There's often the happiness that's in play, happiness or morale. And neither of those things are a factor in in my game. Um with part of it being my design, my general de- design philosophy that I don't want, um, I want my games to feel rewarding and not punishing. 
Not that punishing is inherently a bad thing, but it's just not something that I pursue in my games. Uh, like Na Nation's Dice, I think, does have a little bit of that punishing element, but it doesn't really feel all that bad. It's just, you know, something that you feel like you need to do at certain times in the game. Um, but I also wanted to make sure, like, I was always looking at this game from the macro view, from that big scope of having a civilization that you're starting from the beginning of mankind to the end of mankind, to, to into the future. Um, and with that level of scope, where you're covering thousands of years, uh, the, the element of feeding people didn't really, it didn't seem to fit. That was more of a micro level decision that didn't seem to fit the macro scope that I was aiming for. Yeah, that's a really good point. That that does do that does zoom in just a little bit more mm -hmm. than you know you, you think. Because I mean, yeah, there are famines. You know, there are big moments in history we can look back on and go, okay, this you know th during the Great Depression you had you know the Dust Bowl and all these things and the kind of the famine that came out of that. But that you know we don't typically talk about feeding your people when we're talking about civilization stuff, except when it's like a giant thing you know when when people were starving to death for a long period of time and so i guess that, that makes a lot of sense i wish more i wish more games would uh would think on that term because feeding your people is not usually the most fun <laughs> aspect of a game it's usually something that kind of hinders the leader or something like that it's usually like a penalty like you're yes. saying and so kind of a catch-up mechanism for other people that kind of thing yeah and so let's go back to the beginning just a little bit when you were kind of dreaming up the game and you saw the components and you're kind of figuring out okay what is what do i want to make this game you're just talking about how you know you didn't want that certain aspects in there because that's just not your style yeah. what was the experience that you were really going for like when, when a person played the game you wanted them to feel what really the, the the word that i kept coming back to was epic and that's that's a word that i've been hesitant to throw around in the, as i've been talking about the game now because it's so subjective uh, i think people have different meanings for it and i i really avoid trying to say okay i i try i try to avoid putting those superlatives on my game but I don't mean it in Epic as an inherently positive thing. I mean it in terms of I want someone after they've finished playing Tapestry during and after uh, to, to look at their civilization and have a huge amount, a huge feeling of satisfaction um, that is related to the uh, hopefully an, an Epic uh, experience and um, a civilization that feels like something big that they built and, and, and big and important and memorable. Um, and so in many of the components I designed, many of the mechanisms I designed, I, I did things where I wanted players to feel more and more powerful, um, to always be progressing and advancing and expanding and never being uh, punished or pushed back or destroyed. Um, and uh, it, it was also the impetus behind some of the, the components in the game that I wanted to be have them be big and colorful and, and, and memorable so that when you do look at the game, or you look at your capital city at the end of the game, or you look at your empire on the map, you see something big that you created, and then you have that that moment where you wipe it all away and, and start over again. Yeah, very cool. And so continue talking about tropes and different things that, that show up in a lot of these games. War is in almost all of yeah. them in some fashion, right? It might be super small and you know it's only one, you play one card and that kind of determines things, or you might have epic battles and things like that. So when you were trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to add war to my game? What were you thinking? And then how did you, like, what mechanism did you use to accomplish it? Well, I knew I wanted, I guess the start of it is I knew I wanted a map. We've talked about that a little bit, that there's a map in the game. Um, so that was one key thing, because in some of these games, like Seven Wonders and Through the Ages, there is no map. Uh, they, they address war and military in different ways. Um, but I knew I wanted the map. And so I uh, and I, I figured out fairly early on that 
with the map, I did not want it to be a dudes on a map game. Um, because that to me felt like a single slice of history. Like if you're just, if you're controlling like a little dude and maybe a little catapult and, uh, you know, a few war elephants, as cool as war elephants are, if you're moving them around, that's, that's just a little slice of history. That's a dudes on the map game, more of an empire building game, in my opinion, rather than a Civ game. And so again, I took a, a more macro view and, uh, and so in my game, there, there isn't really this sense, you're not moving around units on the board. You are expanding your territory and there is a conquer mechanism, but the game doesn't get tied up in individual combats. It's more like the, the way I guess you think about it in the game is if you conquer a territory, that's, that's, a, that's something that maybe happened over um, dozens or hundreds of years for you to expand into, into that area. It's not, you're not focusing on a, a single moment, a single battle um, to, uh, to take it over. And you're not definitely not looking at individual uh, soldiers or, or tanks or, or war elephants or anything like that on the board. Yeah, gotcha. And I think that's just something something for a designer to think about. If you really want to take this macro look at, at the game, the genre, whatever, try to do it across the board yeah. as opposed to, you know, picking bits and pieces and saying, okay, well, this is going to be macro, but then the war, that's going to be this, you know, dice rolling, playing cards against each other, having these battles here and determining things. Like, well, that's that's fine. That's great if you want to do that. But if you want to take a macro look at everything, that's not really how, how it would play out. That's a really good good point. Now, your game has a ton of different factions with I'm assuming asymmetrical powers and they're and they're all different in some way. And so tell me about like first of all, why like did the original game, like early on, did it have factions or or, or not? And then kind of how you came up with these these different uh, nations, so to speak. Yeah, similar to to a couple of the games that I've designed, I I typically build the foundation of the game and I make sure that works and that 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 it's fun and functional and intuitive. And then I bring in asymmetry. And that's exactly what I did with Tapestry. So I, I designed the, the, the core of the game without the asymmetric civilizations. Um, I think at one time they were called cultures. They ended up being called civilizations. Uh, and so they, they were added uh, kind of when we were getting close to the blind playtest stage. I think, it was before, I think it was before the first wave of blind playtesting that we did that. Um, but it was fairly late. So I, I was gathering all these ideas during the early foundational design process, but I didn't add them in until later. And then we just tested the heck out of them with, with uh, local and blind play testing to see, to make sure that they were as balanced as possible. Yeah. And so what makes each one different from the rest? They're, I mean, they're just wildly different um, civilizations. Uh, let's see if I can give some examples here. So there's one civilization called uh, the mystics. They're one of my favorites and the mystics, uh, they they believe that they can see the future, but really they're just very good planners. And so at the beginning of the game, if you choose the mystic civilization, you uh, you predict um, how you're going to do in four different categories. Like I think I think one of them is how many territories you're you're going to control, or how many advancement tracks you're going to complete, or how many landmarks you like. Actually, I don't know if that's one, but the, there are four different categories, and you predict how well you're going to do, and then you try to meet those goals during the game. Um, Whereas there's another one called the leaders that's a little bit more simple, where the leaders uh, at the beginning of um, most of your income turns, you just choose a different leader, someone maybe focused in military or science or technology, and you automatically advance on that track and gain the benefit. Um, and so each of the each of the civs are are really completely different um, in terms of how their their mechanisms work. But I try to keep it fairly simple, like it's just it's a single mat uh, with with usually a little bit of graphics. And a little bit of text, um, but uh, 
yeah, something that's that's not not like the root level of asymmetry, uh, the game root, but uh, but definitely it's still each one is meant to be pretty unique. Yeah, very cool. And this really just helps with the replayability. Because how many factions do you have? There are sixteen. Wow, sixteen. <laughs> okay, so yeah, it would take several plays uh, to even see all the different factions. You know, in a five player game, it'd, it'd take three full games to even see. If, if, assuming everybody had a different faction every single time, so that's that's amazing. Uh, and so what were some of the challenges in coming up with 16 or, or did you have 30 and, and you're looking forward to some expansions down the road or was it kind of difficult to come to that 16? Um, you know, I think, I think at most there was a time where there were 20 and then uh, as we tested them and as I refined them, some of them just ended up, some of them just didn't work and others, uh, others were just a little bit too similar to them. Cause one of my goals with them is I really wanted each one to feel unique. So if one felt really similar to another one, I ended up combining them or cutting one of them. But in the end, and for a, a decent part of blind playtesting, there were 16 and we got 16 to work and be fun and, and functional and hopefully pretty balanced. And so I, I did consider maybe uh, holding off something for an expansion, but I just never feel good about that. I, I'd rather, since I already knew they worked and I'd already play tested them, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to put them, put them all in the base game and hopefully I'll have some ideas later or hopefully fans will have some ideas later for me to add some new ones to to expansions. Yeah, that's one thing that you've you've really been able to reap the benefits of having such a huge community of Stonemaier game fans at this point yeah. is people make their own stuff. And you've got these incredible Facebook groups that, for Scythe and all your other games. And so people come up with really cool ideas and then you're able, like you found some really cool expansions and hired other people to come on and design games. And so I'm assuming you're going to have the same kind of a, a success with people coming up with their own factions and maybe even factions based on real life civilizations that can be these kind of print and play kind of things as well. They're, like the sky's the limit for this kind of stuff. And, and so oh. it's going to be really cool to see once people get, get their hands on it. I've seen that with seven wonders too. There's a really cool community. Like there's so many different wonders that, that fans have created. Maybe even, I don't want to say hundreds, but at least dozens and dozens that I've seen people play with. So I'm hoping some level of that happens with tapestry. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things I am absolutely just most impressed with about this game is your rule book. It's uh, like, what is it like four pages? Four pages plus, plus a reference guide that you do need, but the reference guide is just one page front and back. Yeah. Just four page rule book. Four page rule book. So how in the world, like let's, let's say you're sitting down, you're talking to somebody who's trying to design a Civ game. And what, like we already said, these games have a tendency to get huge <laughs> and to be super overwhelming and unwieldy and take seven hours to play. Yeah. And so how in the world did you get down to a four page rule book? Like what would be your advice to somebody that's really struggling with the scope? Ooh, um, well, let me answer that in two different ways. So the first is that it was my goal to, um, to have a game where the complexity and the decisions and all the stuff you really need to know, uh, isn't contained necessarily within the rule book where, where it's, you know, like the, it's the text on the civilization mats, it's text on tapestry cards. Um, it's a, a reference guide that tells you what the, the icons on the board mean. Um, so that was something that I had in mind from the beginning where I, I really wanted uh, a very simple streamlined rule book, somewhat inspired by games like Concordia or many of the plan B games that just have a two or four page rule book, something that's really easy to just read the, the core elements of it and then start playing and discover some of the, the, uh, more complex elements as you play. So that was the intent going into it. Uh, the, the cautionary note, I would say, and so that, that's one thing that people can think about, that the, the complexity doesn't necessarily need to come from a, a big, long set of rules. It can come from other components in the game. 
Uh, I think Concordia is probably the best example of that because Concordia has a very streamlined rulebook and a lot of things you do are just printed on the cards that you're using to take actions throughout the game. Um, but the uh, the other side of it is that I, I, the danger, I think, in, in almost committing to a really short rulebook is that sometimes that means that someone can um, use a lot of small text or they don't have visual examples in it or any examples at all. And so uh, that that temptation may be there. And I really had to keep that in mind as I was designing the rulebook over time and refining it for blind play testers that, um, that I, it needed to be really robustly colorful and full of examples despite the length. Um, and so I kind of ended up having a hybrid rulebook where the, as I'm teaching the game, the examples are built into that teaching process for, for each of the tracks. Um, and I don't know if you've seen the final rulebook, but it's, I'm very really happy with how it turned out because it, it it doesn't seem like a daunting rule book with like a lot of tiny text. It's it's a very visual, colorful rule book that's full of examples that just tell you how to play. Yeah, absolutely. And so, tell me a little bit more about the the teaching process because it sounds like the rule. I haven't seen the rule. I just I heard it was four pages and I was like blown away. <laughs> this two hour stretching the human you know all of human history would be a four page rule book. I was completely impressed. And so, tell me a little bit more about like how you design the rule book with teaching in mind. Yeah, well, it, it really kind of came down to um, a couple of different things that went into the, into the design. And part of it goes beyond the rulebook, which is that in, in Tapestry, there are really only two things you can do on your turn. You, you're, you're either going to take an income turn, where there are a couple of different steps that you'll take. And I've referenced cards to walk you through those steps. It's also in the rulebook. But, uh, but mostly you're just collecting income um, and, and collecting progressively more and more income throughout the game. Or you are taking an advanced turn in the game. And then on an advanced turn, you are simply advancing on one of the four main tracks and you're gaining the benefit of the space that you're advancing to. And so that uh, that's a pretty clean template. Like it's not it's not a lot of different actions to explain. Um, and because of the way the tracks work, even though each track does have a lot of different benefits, I was able to shift all that information over to the reference guide, which is where it, I thought it needed to be anyway, so players can easily reference it throughout the game. Um, the rulebook isn't used to explain every one of those actions. That's a separate place. So I really, in the rulebook, just needed to explain a few different things, a few different core concepts, um, and in particular, a, a few of the... Uh, there's a kind of a core action associated with each of those tracks. And so there's a big page in the rulebook where I explain, okay, this is, this is what it looks like when you explore, uh, when you take the explore action, or this is what it looks like when you take a conquer action. And I walk it through it in, in text, and like I said, in that kind of a hybrid way where I'm explaining what you're doing, but also using an example as I walk through that text to tell players how that process works. Yeah, very cool. I think that this is more and more becoming such an important thing to think about as a designer, as a publisher, is that, you know, if you have a really long, long, long rule book that's overwhelming, it's going to be harder to get that game to the table. Yeah. It's going to be harder for people to teach it, for people to learn it. Uh, it's going to take a lot more time. And, and people don't necessarily want to do that when there's a million games coming out every single year. And it's so like, what does it look like to streamline that process? And like like what you're doing. Okay, so the concepts of the game, it, it, here it is. There's four pages, very simple. But then the cards add complexity. And so that's cool because people can kind of learn the game as they go, yes. as opposed to having to learn everything on the front end. It's almost like a video game. You know, you can just start playing. And then, oh, okay, the right trigger does this. Oh, okay, when I push square and triangle at the same time, it does this other thing. And you can kind of pick stuff up as you go as opposed to having to figure it all out, you know, before we even jump in. And so that's a really cool thing. And so tell me a little bit more about the cards and just different ways you added complexity, maybe added mechanisms. I don't know, like, exactly how it all works. Like, what did you add with the cards? 
Well, it, the cards aren't like I compared it to Concordia a little bit. Concordia uses the cards as the core action mechanism in in um, in Tapestry. It's the the advancement tracks that are the main things that you're doing. The the cards are kind of a separate element that are used during income turns. They're these Tapestry cards that represent memorable moments in your civilization's history. Uh, some of them are ideologies, some are philosophies, uh, some are more more like events. And they do have a little bit of text on them, and they're just saying like this is this is the mechanical thing that happens when you play this card. So uh, they're really, it's just really it feels a little bit like an event deck, but it's really it, most of the cards only affect you when you play them, and you're playing them during three of your income turns. Um, so it's just one of those areas of the game where uh, I, I I had the the luxury of of having text on cards because sometimes I, I avoid that and put icons. But in this case, I was able to just explain on the cards what, what you're doing with each one. Very cool. All right. And so like we were talking about earlier, this game took two years ish to start to finish design, develop, play test, create the components, all that kind of stuff. Right. Is there anything you wish you knew two years ago going in, like something maybe that you could tell the listeners, tell people that maybe you're thinking about making a game like this hmm. that would have helped you either speed up the process or do things a little differently or skip over some things that wasted time. Anything you wish you had known two years ago going in? That's a really good question. Um, it's, it's almost difficult to answer because the design process for Tapestry actually went pretty well. Like if I hadn't figured out the advancement tracks, uh, that, that might have been um, problematic, but I, I, the, it kind of clicked at the right time. I guess one thing that I maybe could have figured out a little bit earlier is how much players, playtesters, wanted um, reasons to pay attention to other players, uh, which often manifests in some form of interaction. There's not very much negative interaction at all in Tapestry, but uh, early versions of it, it was it was very multiplayer solitaire. Um, and as the game evolved, playtesters more and more asked for, hey, like, I, I want a reason to actually care about these people around me. And I guess, you know, that kind of does lead me to the one thing that I, I have learned now that I've, you know, played, played the game a fair amount, which is as I added all that interaction um, or, or reasons to pay attention to other players, it did that does also add to the playing time of the game. So it is a, a 90 to 120 minute game. As a learning game, it's I would say it's almost definitely longer than that because you are not just learning the rules, but also trying to figure out your own thing, but also paying attention to other players. So the more interaction I added, um, it would have been, if I could go back in time and tell myself, hey, like just keep an eye on how that affects the playing time of the game, um, the, that, that idea of player interaction. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was talking to somebody the other day about a, one of their prototypes and the game they were designing, and, and they were trying to figure out how to shorten the game down uh -huh. and it's something that i think there's so many interesting ways to do it but that, you bring up a really good point how much interaction is there between each player because yeah. that's going to exponentially grow the amount of, of time that the game is going to take because not only now am i taking my turn now i have to sit back and go okay what are they going to do two or three turns from now as well because i want to do this two or three turns from now but if they do this it's going to mess me up and so oh, there's so many other scenarios that have to get played out in people's minds which could potentially lead to analysis paralysis could lead to very long turns and so uh, what are some ways that maybe you sped things up like can you only do one thing on a turn like how do you how does your turn structure work to kind of keep the the flow of the game moving yeah for, for the most part it flows very quickly one of the things that i try to do in most of my games is that uh, a turn is 
almost always just one or two things that you're doing. And so for the advanced turns in the game, where you're, all you're doing is paying a cost to advance on a track. You're not choosing even where to on that track to advance. You're always advancing just to the next level, the next space on that track, and then you gain the benefit. Uh, so pay the cost, move your little token, gain a benefit. Very short and simple. Um, and usually there are some choices involved. Like if you're exploring, you're still choosing which territory tile to put on the board. You're choosing where to put it. But very few things that other players will do, uh, especially early in the game, will impact that decision. There is one exception to that, which is the, these income turns that you're taking. And a game of Tapestry lasts five income turns. You start the game with an income turn and you end the game with an income turn. And then there are three in the middle. And those are a little bit more involved. Um, but the thing that I try to do to keep the game speeding up uh, sped up with those more involved turns is for the most part, I try to make it so that if I'm in the middle of my income turn, you can just go ahead and take your turn. Uh, that very little of what I'm doing on my income turn impacts uh, the next player. There are exceptions to that, though, especially as I added more interaction um, to like those tapestry cards that you're playing. There are definitely now more tapestry cards that impact other players, usually in a positive way uh, than, than before. And so if I'm choosing on my income turn to play one of those tapestry cards, I kind of have to let you know, hey, like you can't go ahead and take your turn because I'm about to do something that you need to know about. Um, and some of the civilizations are the same way. I would say about, about half of the civilizations have some form of interaction, again, usually positive to other players. And oftentimes those civ abilities trigger during the income turns. So uh, th those are the one turn, the one type of turn that can, that can feel like that runs a little long. But if I had taken away more interaction from those turns, it definitely could have been the type of turn where I just say, okay, I'm going to do this. You go ahead and do your thing. Don't worry about all this income that I'm, I'm gathering right now. Yeah, gotcha. And so one thing you mentioned right there was was in-game and, and how mm -hmm. things end up and whatnot. Now, that's one thing about a lot of these games. It's very different how things end. You know, some games are you have a certain number of rounds. Some games you, you're basically in a race and the first person to get to the space age, you know, that triggers the end game, that kind of thing. And then we count up points that, yeah. you know, kind of way things play out. So when you're trying to figure out how do I want this game to end? Because I know you're a lot of your games, it's it's not, you know, we're going to have this many rounds and that kind of thing. Like, what were you what were you trying to figure out? And and kind of walk me through that process and did, like, did it change? Did you have an idea on the front end and it changed over the design process or, or anything? Yeah. For at least some amount of time throughout the design process, the game was played in more traditional rounds where players would, you know, take a certain number of turns and then the round would end. Everyone would collect income at the same time. And then you proceed to the next round. And that was fine. It, parts of it made sense, especially because I, I, I definitely wanted, uh, an idea of income. I, want, I wanted players to feel like they were getting more and more stuff every time they ended a round. But it it just didn't flow the way I wanted it to flow. I, th I think there are games that have rounds that flow well. Some of them are some of my favorite games. Some of the games that we publish have rounds, and I still think they flow well. But it just, it, it just didn't fit in this game uh, because players were just, like, it's a big world. It's a macro view. So each player is off kind of doing their own thing for a lot of the game. It didn't really make sense thematically to say, okay, the world is just going to stop right now and everyone's just going to happen to collect income at the same time. And so I moved away from it. I kind of stumbled into the Everdell system, uh, which I didn't even quite realize at the time. But in Everdell, players take, I don't know, I don't think they're called income turns in Everdell, but they're essentially income turns. Players take them whenever they're ready. They, you take a bunch of normal turns and then when you're ready, when you individually are ready, you take your income turn. And then the next player does, and the next player does whenever they are ready. And so this all adds up to, uh, back to your question about the end game, 
of instead of having a set number of rounds uh, that all players end the game at the same time, it was more that I decided the correct length for the game is around is five income turns. And so whenever any player takes in their final income turn, that's the last thing they'll do. Those are the last points they'll get in the game. Um, and then they they wait for other players to take their final income turn as well. So there, there's a little bit of downside there. There can be you can be sitting there for a few minutes while the other players are turn are taking their turns. But because you are then out of the game, it's one less player to take a turn. It speeds things up. Usually you're just sitting there for a few minutes while the other players take a few more advancement turns and then their final income turn. Yeah, I played Everdale over the summer, and I was super impressed yeah. with that system of being able to move to the different seasons. Yeah. And because it created some very interesting choices, you know, I remember at one point in the game, it's like, okay, I really want to go to the next season, but right now the player that's like was to my right, they're sitting on some things that I want to be able to go to, and so I want, I need them to pick up all their people off the board so I can. Get, and so I created these really interesting choices about when to do it based on what when other other players were gonna, you know, pick up their pieces and move to the next season. In, ahead of me or behind me and so it's like okay if i do it right now i can take this place that then that other person they can't take and so i can take remove that option away from them and maybe it'll cost them some points and gain me some points it just creates some really cool decisions and so i, I think that's maybe a system that will hopefully show up in more games you know of, of giving players kind of the option of when to move on to the next round and maybe you know it's, it's part of the min maxing of figuring out when is the best time to right. do it because it's it's going to be different based on what strategy you're trying to take or based on what other actions uh, players are doing at the table yeah there's a little thing in tapestry where because the, the, if you are being if you're really optimizing your use of resources in the game your limited resources you you are probably doing better than other players so if if Gabe, if you pass to your first income turn two turns ago, and I'm still taking turns, then I'm probably doing something maybe slightly better than you. But the the balance there my, in, in Tapestry is that if you are the first of your neighbors, to the players to your left and your right, to pass into a new era, um, you gain a bonus resource. And, and the, it actually escalates. It's one resource, then two resources, then three resources. So that's an, that adds another layer to it. That uh, it's, it's both a catch-up mechanism, that if you are not optimizing, then you get that bonus resource. Hopefully you can do better the next, uh, in the next era, but also it's a kind of like the, one of those interesting choices that you mentioned that, you know, do I, do I really need to take this advancement turn now, or should I jump ahead right now and jump ahead of the other players around me and get that bonus resource so that my next era can be better than theirs? Yeah. Very cool. And it also incentivizes some things, you know, because game design is all about incentives and what we're motivating and incentivizing players to do. And that's, that's a really interesting way to do it. Now, as far as resources go, a lot of these games have resource management in some way. Now, a lot of them, they have food, they have iron, they have gold, they kind of have very stereotypical uh, resources to figure out. And so tell me about the resources in your game and like why you chose those as opposed to doing, you know, some games have 10, some games have two or three. So like, tell me like which ones you're using and then why, why those? Yeah. Early on in the design, especially since I started out with these, these, uh, these buildings that end up being called landmarks in the game. Um, early on, there was the concept of like brick and wood and ore and, and wheat and things that you would like build buildings with. Um, but as I moved more to this macro view and as I embraced the more macro, macro view, I, I moved away from those individual resources and I moved into, uh, well, the ones that I ended up having are, are, are food, culture, um, workers, and and money. So I, I I kind of tried to pick things. Culture is the one really weird, a uh, little weird one, because you don't really spend culture, but you do uh, 
you know, you, you improve your ability to uh, accumulate food, you improve your economy and improve your, your money production and your, your population can change over time. Those things are a little bit more tangible. Culture is a little bit less tangible, but it fits so well into the Civ game genre that I ended up keeping it in there. Um, but yeah, it was kind of, I, I partially looked at other Civ games and partially looked at things that just made sense that would uh, reflect on the success of a civilization on a macro level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love the idea of culture. I was designing a game years ago that was not very good, but one of the main things, it's a Civ game, but one of the main things was you could win through culture, that your culture could dominate the world to the point where you just kind of took it over culturally, you know, which is something interesting to think about uh, as far as you know, that, that kind of thing, like your music and your movies and your language, different things could, could so uh, get into other parts of the world that you could kind of take over from the inside out. I think that's, it's a cool yeah. thing to have uh, because it does make sense from a, a macro uh, level especially. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple couple publishing side of things, questions for you. One thing I've seen recently, just maybe in some comments and things, you know, people talking on Facebook is about the components and people saying, well, you know, this could have been a $50 game had you used cardboard or, you know, chits or wood or something like that. And, and so like, tell me about like dealing with that kind of thing. Cause you had a vision early on. Again, this was the first thing you, you had that gave you that spark were these really amazing component possibilities. Yeah. And so, like, how do you then manage the expectations, manage people complaining about, well, that increased the price? And, like, tell me about that, like, holding true to your, your vision as a designer and a publisher. So it was very much part of my vision to have these full-color pre-painted uh, landmark miniatures. Um, I, I thought that that was part of my – earlier we talked about that, the idea of uh, being able to look over your civilization at the end of the game and see something uh, – epic, hopefully, and big and, and beautiful and vibrant and 3D. Those were all things that I really wanted players to walk away from after the, after playing a game of Tapestry. At the same time, I do know, and I'm sure you've experienced this in in, uh, in in your designs, that there are things that you fall in love with in a game that just don't work the way you hope you will. they will, and you end up having to cut them. And so I considered certainly a number of times uh, changing them to to either tiles or unpainted miniatures. Um, in the end, I didn't go. I, I did. I stopped considering the idea idea of tiles. It just didn't uh, fit with what I was aiming for. And I have uh, I completely admit that if we had gone with all tiles instead of all um, miniatures, that the price would be lower. Um, but as a producer of games, as a publisher, publisher of games, I need to draw that line somewhere because I, I could instead of like printing tapestry, I could have just put it online as a free. Uh, print and play or like a $1 print and play. So you can go all the way down to like the cheapest version, or you can make something that's, uh, that's more memorable on the tabletop. Uh, and, you know, as a, as a producer publisher, I, I have to make these choices about every component as it relates to budget. In the end though, uh, what it amounts to is that it came down between pre-painted miniatures and unpainted miniatures and the price different the the difference in the MSRP wasn't all that different at that point because I had a certain price point that I was aiming for with the painted miniatures that was artificially lower than what it should have been based on a five times multiplier on manufacturing cost. And uh, whereas if I had just gone with the painted miniatures and gone with a normal five times multiplier, the difference in MSRP would have been around like nine dollars, nine or ten dollars. And so to add nine or $10 to the price uh, to have these pre-painted miniatures instead of unpainted miniatures, in my opinion, was absolutely worth it. I totally respect when people who 
will disagree with that, um, maybe because of the value or maybe because they simply don't like prepainted miniatures. But um, I am happy with that decision in the end. Yeah, I mean, here's the deal. Nothing looks like tapestry. Like there's not a game on the market right now that looks anything like what you've created. And so I think that's there's a huge value in that. I think Days of Wonder really pioneered yeah. that idea over a decade ago of saying, we're going to create, and then back then they were saying, we're going to do one game a year and it's going to look amazing and it's going to be great gameplay and, and the components are going to be awesome. And I mean, their games from 10 years ago still hold up to games now. I mean, their, their components are still better quality now than, than games coming out now. And I think that that goes a long way with building a fan base, building raving fans that say, hey, this this publisher, they go the extra mile to make the games amazing. Because like you're saying, you could have turned this into all cards and it would have been 20 right. bucks, right? It could have just been totally cards, you know, nothing but having to worry about card stock and poker size cards and the game box would have been tiny and $20 <laughs> game, cool. But it wouldn't be anywhere near the the product that you've created. And so I think that's just something for, for publishers to, to think about. It's like, what are you really trying to accomplish? Because a race to the bottom doesn't necessarily uh, get you anywhere. Uh, Second publishing question for, and this is designer and publishing. What did you learn from Charterstone that you were able to kind of take over into this project that kind of enhanced it or informed it in, in different ways? Because Charterstone has some similar things going on. Mm-hmm. And it's got, it has amazing components. Uh, it's, you know, it's got the sieve building thing to a certain degree. It's, it's much more on the micro level, obviously. But what were some things you learned from that project you were able to kind of take into this one? I'm sure there are many things that are subconscious. Two things, quick, quick things that come to mind. Are, one, we talked about the rule book a little bit. In Charterstone, I also had this goal of having a very simple, almost blank rule book and teaching the rules from there. And I think that's one of the one of the biggest things that maybe has held Charterstone back because it, I, I, was, I tried to fit all these rules onto little sticker cards that you put in the rule book. And it means that if you miss one little line on one of those cards or you put the card in the wrong place or you somehow miss a rule and you don't, it doesn't end up in the rule book, uh, players can be lost a little bit. And so if I ever reprint Charterstone, I'll, I'll put an FAQ in it. And I kind of wish I had done that from the beginning to have to stick with this blank rule book where you're discovering rules as you play, but also have an FAQ in it from, from the start. And so whereas Tapestry doesn't have an FAQ, it does have a very robust reference guide for both the tech cards and the different actions and the, the icons in it. And it just, it really informed how I designed the, the Tapestry rulebook. The other little thing, this is a little random thing, but it's something to think about, I think, for, for other designers and publishers, uh, as I'm sure many of you already have, but I hadn't thought about this before. In Charterstone, you are gathering resources and I have a bunch of resource tokens in the game. So if you're gathering coal, I think there are like 12 coal tokens in the game that you're gathering. But in tapestry, instead I went with a track system where you have a little track on your income mat um, and numbered one to eight. And you just kind of, you have one, not coal, but you have one food token that you just slide down that track as you spend it or you increase it as you gain income or gain more food. Uh, I've seen that in Gaia Project and other games like that. I don't always love it, but it is certainly a way if you are looking to to cut cost a little bit or to, to cut because even though it's nice to hold a bunch of resources in your hand, it's essentially the same as effect, effect as just having a little slider track there. So that's why like one little thing I think that that maybe designers and publishers can, can consider if they do have resources in the game to have a little slider track instead of a bunch of tokens for every resource. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I'm I'm dealing with right now. I, I've got a a game that is based on time and you have 20 time units. And it's like, well, it'd be really cool to have 20 little hourglasses that you kind of discard as the game goes. It's like, yeah, but it'd be a lot cheaper just to have a track with a cube. You know? And so and maybe that's a Kickstarter thing you know, down the road that if it overfunds, then then you get the extra cool tokens or something like that. But it's just something to think about from a, 
publishing standpoint. Now you mentioned the reference guide. Yeah. Uh, let's switch over and, and kind of as we close things out, we'll talk about playtesting. Yeah. Did the reference guide come out of what the playtesters were saying? Hey, we're having a hard time remembering this rule, having a hard time remembering this aspect of the game. Like, tell me how the reference guide came to be. Well, I kind of always knew that half of the reference guide was going to be necessary with that half being exactly what each of the benefits in the game are. And originally, I think I tried to fit it onto the back page of the rule book, but eventually I was like, okay, I don't want to do that. I, I need that extra space in the rule book. And I want something that's a little thicker, a little more sturdy that players can pass around or hold on to or look at. I ended up putting two of them in the game, so you don't always have to pass them around. You can have one on either side of the table. So that was kind of in there. I wouldn't necessarily attribute that to playtesters. However, the back side of the reference guide explains what every tech card does. And that definitely came from playtesting and some urging from Morton, the guy who does our, our solo designs. Um, because in, in my mind, I was like, okay, well, all these all the icons on these tech cards are also elsewhere in the game. So you can just look at the reference guide for the different benefits in the game and know that this action means to gain points for every, um, every territory you've conquered. But it is, I have to admit, it's just easier to also just look for that specific tech card on the back of the on the back of the reference guide. So we had that space, it's a two-sided you know, it's a two -sided, uh, page, and one side was covered with the, the, the uh, benefits, and the other side, instead of being blank, uh, is full of those tech cards and little explanations of what they do. So that definitely, that was a great question, because that definitely came from playtesting and, and from Morton. Yeah, these, these kind of things are so valuable, especially in a game that's really big. I played Kemet over the summer as well, yep. and the reference guide for that thing is invaluable. Like, you can't lose that thing. You know, otherwise, you'll have no idea what all those different cards do. And so it's really cool to be able to pass that around and go, okay, I think I want, to, I want this card, but let me check it against some of the others. And it's all right there in that same spot. All the information's in one place, and it just makes it so much easier. And so let's keep talking about playtesting. How in the world do you playtest? A game like this, a game that's so big that's gonna, it's not cheap to produce prototypes by any stretch. So, like, tell me about the playtesting process for it. Well, for a lot of my playtesting and a lot of the blind playtesters, we just used uh, cubes and blocks because there is a spatial element in the game um, that, uh, the, the, like, the size of things do matter. But uh, actually, what I ended up doing with that is I, I used tiles. Even though I knew the game finally it wasn't going to be tiles, I had just a simple sheet of a landmark tiles because uh, it's the footprint of each tile that really matters or footprint of each landmark that really matters. So people could pretty easily cut that out. And then there, there are income buildings, but they're essentially just, they could be cubes. They are miniatures, but they could be cubes. So I actually don't think that building the prototype was all that difficult. Um, as far as I can tell, probably the most difficult thing was cutting out hexes. That's always so much harder than cutting, cutting out cards. Have you had that happen? Again? Have you had to cut up hexes for a prototype? Oh man, absolutely. I just order them from the game crafter now. Like I don't even worry about cutting them. I'll just order like a hundred from them that are blank and then I'll just write on them or, or paste what I need to. Uh, yeah. Cutting hexes is, yeah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the worst. Yeah. Now, as far as the playtesting goes, anything that came up from playtesters that surprised you or anything that changed the game in any kind of like really dramatic way? Um, I mean, the biggest thing were, were those ideas of, of player interactions and reasons to play, to pay attention to other players. That was the the main the main thing that playtesters kept saying that I kept trying to hear what they were saying. And actually, the one other thing that they kept saying, and this is kind of an interesting case to me because they said one thing and they requested one thing, and I decided that they were right to request it, but their solution was not right, which was that um, play for these tapestry cards, these cards that that tell the story of your civilization. 
um, that have text on them. It is a random card draw in the game. And so there are certain benefits in the game where you advance on a track and you gain a tapestry card. And maybe you do something else, but you gain that tapestry card, you just draw it from the top of the deck. And the playtesters kept asking for me to let them draw two tapestry cards and select from between those two cards. I totally respect that. I get the intent behind it. But um, but in my mind, I thought that was going to slow the game down because players would choose these two cards, have to read both of them, think about how they related to their strategy, and finally discard one of them and end their turn. Um, and so what I decided to do is instead, I kind of used the viticulture method, which is instead of letting players draw two of those cards at a time, um, I built it into income. And so players automatically at the beginning of every income turn, they get a tapestry card, a free tapestry card. And so that way they have, they had more choices to make in their hand. Cause the, the problem that players were having was that they would, they would go out of their way to gain a tapestry card as a benefit as their turn. And then it just wouldn't be all that exciting to them. Maybe it was one that just didn't work out all that well. So part of that was me needing to make the tapestry cards better and more interesting, more fun and more powerful and more balanced. Uh, but part of that was just m me thinking they, they need more options. And this is how I want to give, I want to give them ample options to choose from and avoid this, this uh, draw to pick one solution. Awesome. Well, Jamie, man, this is, this has been great, man. This has been super informative. Uh, do you have any kind of closing thoughts for somebody? Maybe they're sitting there thinking about, Oh, I could make a Civ game, or maybe they're in the middle of one and it's overwhelming right now. Like, what would you, what would you tell them? Well, it's a genre I, I love and I, I, really look forward to other people adding their, like, I think it's one of those things in, in tabletop games where it, it, I'm guessing it is a grail type of design for a lot of different designers. So I look forward to designers putting their own slant on it. And I hope, like, I designed this game at least partially for me. I, I wanted a game that wasn't tied to real world history and that uh, where I, I could tell my own story through the game and that where the scope was epic, where it was big, where it, it spanned the, the time, the territory, the technology that I talked about. And so, whereas this is my take on that, I kind of hope that someone else will give that same philosophy a shot at some point in a very different way. And I look forward to playing it, especially if someone is able to do a campaign or legacy version of it. I knew that wasn't something I wanted to try, but I would definitely play it if anyone ever figured it out. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Well, Jamie, again, this has been awesome. I uh, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Tapestry as it's coming out. What's uh, what's the launch date? Uh, the pre-order from us, directly from us, will be September 4th through the 7th. So just a short pre-order and then a few months later it'll be available in retail. Very cool. I look forward to playing it. Hopefully, uh, probably next summer. I I've got friends I stay with during the summer that, that buy all the new games. <laughs> so I'm assuming they'll have it. And uh, so I look forward to playing it uh, sometime soon. But good luck with that and the pre-order and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?